The scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So says St. Paul in our epistle lesson. In our gospel lesson, Jesus tells a story about what faith looks like. It is great to believe. It is a good thing to speak what we believe with our mouths, particularly on Sunday mornings in our corporate worship. But to live out what we speak with our mouths is true faith operating in our lives. We prayed this morning our collect or prayer for the day, which extends into the week unless a saint's day um, is there. Almighty and merciful God, of whose only gift it cometh that thy faithful people do unto thee true and laudable service. That, we're talking just about what Jesus gave an example of, our faith in operation. We ask God that he would that we would so faithfully serve Him in this life. How? Faithfully. So faith is a great theme of this morning. I think it is fair to say that all of us have probably found difficulty abounding in our maintaining of faith. Especially Difficult is attempting to maintain our faith in our own power. Impossible, in fact. Faith, of course, is the gift of God. Yet, as Jesus reminds us in our gospel lesson, we are the ones who must exercise this gift of faith. So God gives us faith. We get His gift but now, it's, it's like when you were a kid and you got a toy. You remember the toy your parents thought you'd really like and you never played with it? God feels like that when we do that with faith. So we are called to operate in faith. We are called to live in our faith. We are called to exercise our faith. It is, however, especially hard to exercise our faith when we see the injustice in this fallen world. The problem of evil, which will be, as I said, discussed this coming Friday at Theology on Tap, comes back to haunt us time and again. If God is such a good God and such a powerful God, then why is they're evil. Why do good people have bad things happen to them? And why do wicked men prosper? For many in our culture, this issue keeps them from faith. I think it's, <coughs> I think it's fair to say that the millennial generation has a particular concern for justice. And he wrote, wrote, a, wrote a book to reach out to that generation and I think he nailed it fairly well uh, in doing kind of an evangelistic reach out by saying, look, this group is looking for these things. And one of them was justice. And his point was, Jesus is concerned with justice too. Our average 70-year snapshot of the world 
does not give us enough of a picture most often to see the big picture. We don't see the destruction of the wicked, the judgment of God upon them. We see only, very typically, their prosperity. And it often becomes hard for us to continue to proclaim the goodness of God and the wonders of His works because we ourselves start to doubt God's goodness and we start to doubt His work. We often won't say it to ourselves, so to speak, in our own mind. In other words, we often don't even allow our conscious thoughts to acknowledge this doubt. In fact, this usually serves to push us further into a Gnostic kind of faith. All this world's evil, the only thing that matters is my spirit. Somehow I have to keep my spirit alive. I have to keep looking to God and trusting in God, even though everything I see out there in the physical world doesn't give me much hope. We doubt the promises of God because we don't see them coming to fruition in our time or in our space, in our lives, in our world. We don't see the wicked condemned and the righteous prospering, especially in our own understanding of prosper. As we think about our own struggles in this area, let us go to the Psalm of Asaph our appointed psalm this morning, and see how this man of God dealt with the same issue. You can look it up in your prayer book or you can look it up, Psalm 73 in the Bible. The structure of the psalm is that of a poem written, obviously from hindsight, actually quite a bit of hindsight. Asaph is coming to his topic after having been enlightened. And having come back to a right relationship with God, if you will. So the first thing we see is a statement of God's goodness, even though the psalm is about a lot of struggle. God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. By the way, as a side note, it's interesting to note that Asaph describes Israel not by racial or national standards but by heart standards. The parallelism of the Hebrew poetic structure shows us that Israel is those people who have pure hearts. All in Israel were expected to have pure hearts, but those who, who were, excuse me, those who did not have pure hearts can be seen in some ways to be outside the boundaries of this definition. Similarly, those who do not have pure hearts in the church are seen, at least in some sense theologically, to be outside the boundaries. They are what Jesus calls the tares or the weeds. Indeed, as the church is aware of and deals with the results of their hearts, they are ecclesiologically placed outside the boundaries sacramentally in excommunication. It doesn't mean, however, that they are not connected to Christ. They're just severing the connection that in some sense they still have by the operation of the Holy Spirit in their lives in baptism. Complicated. We'll leave that for another discussion. Asaph starts with the statement of God's goodness and then confesses his sin of not 
having faith in God's goodness and God's faithfulness to him. <coughs> Excuse me. Asaph moves right into a public confession of his own personal guilt and motives and thinking and heart condition. It's really particularly startling when you think about how he defines Israel, those that are pure in heart. And then he confesses, I wasn't this. This is where I missed it. In many ways, this psalm is a very personal poem. We are seeing the struggle of this man of God, and he makes the struggle very clear. Asaph says he had almost stumbled. His steps had nearly slipped. Had well nigh slipped, I think, says the the Coverdale. I love it. What was his sin? Verse 3, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You can, you can imagine, having just chanted this psalm, you can remember he's seeing the wicked prosper and he's losing faith. Asaph was very clearly here in this verse envious. Note that he makes clear and known to all right up front his own sin. He does not address what tempted him to sin, but rather he addresses the real problem, his sin. This is often hard for us to do. I see my own sin somewhere in the back of my heart, but it is much easier to focus on a particular problem out there in the world, to struggle with this thing or that issue, and that's what really led me down this road. And all of that may be true, but it's much more helpful spiritually for us to just right up front confess the sin and then wrestle with how we got there. The real problem, the real ultimate problem is always in the heart. The real problem is our own sin. It's not my struggles with this or that intellectual situation or command of God, but that I lack faith and I choose to be selfish, prideful, maybe also envious. In his envy, Asaph missed the mark. He missed his calling to God. In his envy, Asaph showed a lack of faith in his creator and redeemer and sustainer. Now, with that out of the way up front, Asaph does move forward to explain the actual situation he was dealing with. And as we talked about earlier, this is something that I would guess we all deal with at one time or another. Asaph was struggling with the problem of evil in the world, particularly the problem of evil men prospering. Evil men are full of sin. Look at the list we can see in verses 4 through 9. We see pride, arrogance, violence, gluttony, oppression, lack of charity. And we could imagine many more. St. Paul often gives us good lists to fill in with our imagination. But this brief account suffices for Asaph's purposes. What does he want to show? For all their sins, listed out, 
these evil men are prospering. Wait, they prosper? What happened to covenantal cursings? The evil are supposed to be cursed and the faithful prosper. Asaph knows his Bible. There seems to be something wrong in the picture, in this picture that Asaph has seen. <coughs> At this point in his recounting of the story, Asaph tells us that he thought he had been a good Christian for nothing. He had done it all in vain. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. I am following God and I'm being plagued and chastened and they're being rewarded. He's living the faithful life and he gets its hard he all he gets is hard knocks. He's plagued, he's chastened, he doesn't get the easy life of the wicked. Something seems out of place, something seems wrong. Shouldn't the faithful be blessed and the wicked damned? Why is this happening? You can hear him screaming, perhaps even shaking his fist at God. Something is very wrong here. Something is wrong at this point in the story. But it has more to do with Asaph's heart and not with God's providential rule of the world and history. Asaph is struggling mightily. He is in sin. Remember he said that during this whole experience he had almost fallen off the precipice as it were. He had almost really gone off the deep end spiritually. He was in sin and almost gave in to greater sin and lack of faith. What is it that checks that sin? What has God put on in Asaph's heart? Well, he was raised and trained in the scriptures and he is a leader of worship of the people of God. He recognizes his enormous responsibility to God and God's people. He's almost ready to speak his mind, to go public with his doubts and under uncertainties and lack of faith. He's almost ready to be an example of sin and faithlessness to God's people. He remembers, however, God's call to him to lead God's people. He remembers his responsibility before God, and we can assume the magnitude of it settled upon him, even in his sin, and convinced him to shut his mouth for he would have been untrue to that generation of God's people. He would have lived the lie of sin in front of all these people looking at him. So he kept his mouth shut and he struggled inwardly. He couldn't understand the whole situation. He was confused. Finally, he realizes where he must go. Rather, he probably remembers and, and thinks, how silly I have been. When I struggle, I'm to go to the only one who can truly ultimately help. I am to go to my God. Asaph struggled until, as he says, I went into the sanctuary of God. His struggle with sin ended in worship. He came to God in worship and met God there. He came to God in worship 
and was, in, was strengthened and enlightened, he understood. I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. God shows him again, for he already knew from the scripture that the wicked will get their just reward in God's timing, not in ours. Then we see Asaph in his repentance in verses 21 and 22. I was so stupid, he says, a beast before you. He's vexed. He's remorseful. He should have trusted God, he sees. For the benefit of being one of God's children is that he is continually with God. You, God, says Asaph, hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. How much more for us who have been gifted, each of us, with the Holy Ghost in our baptism. How much more is that true of us? Who in all the world in heaven can save me but you, God? Whom should we desire, brethren, but God? My flesh and my heart fail, says Asaph, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. May we never forget this lesson. God is our strength and our portion. Like Asaph, we must always remember that it is, it is good for us to draw near to God. And this is the biblical phrase that means to come to God in worship. God says to Moses, come up here, draw near to me. God says it again to us. We are to draw near to the Lord our God and put all our trust in him that we may declare all his works. That is the summary of our daily and weekly lives. We draw near to God in worship, having our faith Strengthened. That's what we need as we are fed by word and by sacrament. We declare all God's works in praise and thanksgiving. And then we go out into all the world and declare in our words and in our actions, as Jesus reminds us today, all God's works to our lost neighbors. To those that are out there and hurting, beaten up, half dead that they might join us in drawing near to our just and merciful God who visits judgment on them that hate him and mercy and blessings upon those who love him Amen